Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 53 being recorded on Thursday, October 20th, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. As usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and hey, Jason and Scott listeners. It's good to be back live this week. We got a, I feel like it's been forever since we've chatted because we had so much backlog from shop.org. It's been literally three weeks since we put down our new show. I know, and I've been missing you, to be honest. Yeah, me too. We're, uh, I haven't been traveling a lot. How about you? I am missing you from New York City this week. Ah, okay. Cool. Have you? Is that the only city you've been to since Dallas, or have you? What nope, other nope. I've been on the road a fair amount. I was in uh, Florida last week for the Hybris Customer Summit here in the U.S., and uh, I think we were expecting a hurricane that ended up going your way instead, so... Uh, it was lucky for me, but I'm sorry for you. Yeah, it's the first time Disney's closed since like 2004 or something like that. Yep, I was actually... Hopefully that... Did that put a kibosh on some of their plans? No, not really. I think things worked out. It was actually reasonably nice weather. Um, I was having some flashbacks, though. I actually lived in South Florida during Hurricane Andrew. And uh, having grown up in earthquake weather, I can assure all our listeners that Earthquakes are way, way better than hurricanes. Hurricanes are much more scary. Mm, really? Well, I feel like an earthquake, I've you never... just kind of wake up and you survived it or you didn't. But there's not like a lot of pre-terror before the event. And the, the hurricane lasts quite a while of uh, un- uncomfortableness. Yeah, you kind of know they're coming and then you get your track and then it doesn't follow the track and... Yeah, exactly. That was actually my sad Hurricane Andrew tale. I had just moved to South Florida, and my employer, in an abundance of caution, suggested I evacuate Fort Lauderdale because that was in the track of the hurricane. And they put me up at a hotel in Miami. And then, of course, Hurricane Andrew went right over Fort Lauderdale, caused no damage, and my hotel in Miami was in the eye of the storm. (laughs) Hopefully you survived that. Unscathed. Uh, I gen- I did. It was a it was an interesting experience being uh, stuck in a hotel for several days with no power or plumbing. But but uh, it's all good now. <laughs> it's like your uh, your camping kind of story. Exactly. My my apocalypse story. Hey, we hit an exciting um, benchmark with the show. Yeah, which one are you referring to? We got past 65,000 listens, so we just want to thank everyone for listening to the show. Uh, we really appreciate it. When we started this, we never thought we would get here. We thought maybe Jason's mom would listen in, so uh, we've dramatically exceeded our expectations. Yep, and mom, I, I do know you're listening, so you don't need to send more fan mail just because Scott mentioned you. <laughs> Although you can send it to me. I always enjoy hearing from you. Yeah, I, I'm making a note to give her your personal email. And uh, always looking for embarrassing Jason photos, FYI. So just keep those. You know, oh, God. Forget those. Yeah, now she's not getting the email. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> cool. Well, you're in New York City, and whenever you're there, you always find some cool retail stuff to, 
to mess around with? Were there any new magic mirrors or anything that was exciting? Uh, I'm happy to report I did not have to see any new magic mirrors because <laughs> uh, I'm not the world's biggest fan of that particular use case. But there is, uh, as is usually the case, some exciting new retail in uh, New York. So um, I have a pretty good gig for work today. I went to um, Harry's Barbershop, which is a, a live store opened by the Harry's e-commerce site and got a, uh, a haircut and a shave. Um, and then uh Went to the remodeled uh, Soho Uniqlo store, which was Uniqlo's first store here in New York, and uh, got to check it out. Went to a new Sonos store and got to check out their new store. Um, went to the new Apple shopping shop in the Herald Square Macy's store, and we could talk a little bit about that. And then wrapped up my day going to Google's new pop-up store in Soho. Cool. Yeah, let's uh, let's backtrack. Tell me about Harry's. Is it kind of a bonobos Warby kind of experience? But it sounds like you actually go in and you get a service, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, it, it very much like it. So you know they they're selling their subscriptions through the store, but that really feels anecdotal to the experience. So it, it definitely feels like primarily a brand based experience, and they've they've made it kind of a a cool throwback barber shop with a little bit of a hipster vibe. Um, and it, it definitely has sort of the Harry's design aesthetic, but it, it feels like a really authentic high end barber shop. And, and, uh, you know, in addition to haircuts, you can get like a, a straight razor shave and, and, uh, you know, so I, I, for work got to pamper myself a little bit. Nice. Thanks. Razor fish for the, uh, Personal grooming. Exactly. The um, How many seats do they have in, in barbers, stylists, or whatever you want to call them? Is it like two to kind of just do demos, or is it more like eight? Or no, 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 no. Like it feels kind of like, space? yeah, so I want to say they had like six to eight chairs. I, uh, you kind of caught me. I did not count, but it, uh, it was definitely more than two, but did not feel like a, a factory kind of thing. And I did not have an appointment, so I was able to walk in in the morning and, and uh, get pretty speedy service. So... Uh, I think they've only been opened about a month in that location. Um, but again, it sort of follows this trend we've seen with a lot of e-commerce sites where one of the best traffic generators for a website you can do is to open a physical location. And so, you know, for all my omni-channel clients, you see that, like you see the traffic um, dramatically larger in markets where they have stores and when they close stores, like we talk a lot about the the malls closing stores and the, you know, the Macy's and the Sears and uh, they're, they're, you know, that traffic doesn't shift to the web. They lose a lot of web traffic in that local market when those uh, signs go down. And so, you know, I think this is a, a, a overt effort on Harry's part to have a rich brand experience and have a, um, you know, a nice billboard for the brand that probably is, you know, break even or potentially profitable, uh, because of the services they're selling in there. Got it. Were there a kiosk for ordering subscriptions or anything like that? Or was it just like a handout kind of? Yeah, no, no, no. It was pretty, like, there was not a lot of technology in the store. It was pretty low tech. So they had, you know, like paper postcards um, with like an offer code for the, you know, their various subscription services. And you, you, you know, could, whether you got a service there or not, you could see their demo razors and, and those kinds of things. And then you could take a postcard home and sign up yourself or on a mobile device, but they, they did not 
that I noticed have a kiosk in the store or anything like that. Cool. Then I'm uh, next most excited about the Google pop-up. Did you get your hands on any of the new stuff they announced? Uh, I guess that was the week after the summit. Um, they announced the Pixel, um, the Daydream, and the Home. Uh, did you get a chance to touch and feel and play with any of that stuff? All of the above. I had to stand in line for each of them. So it was a pretty popular experience. Uh, you, um, They throttled how much traffic they'd let in the store. And so at first I should say... Uh, there's a pop-up store in a physical retail environment, um, pretty extravagant design. There, there was a lot of retail theater in the store uh, in Soho on Prince Street, very near Broadway, in the, uh, which, which is kind of a, a hip retail area of town. It's, it's probably two blocks from the Apple Soho store. Uh, it's around the corner from a, a, a very hyped Rebecca Minkoff store, which is one of the the most technology laden stores uh, that we have in the U.S. Uh, that everyone talks about a lot because of the magic mirrors and the RFID and all those sorts of things. So it's kind of in a cool, trendy retail area, um, and there was quite a line to get in. So I would say I, I had to stand in line for about thirty minutes to get in the store at all, and then. There was sort of a main experience around each of the products you mentioned, and there was probably a ten or twenty minute wait to get your hands on any of those products or experience those products. And so I I did all of them. Now, is this kind of the size of a smaller Apple store, or was it even smaller than that? No, probably smaller than any Apple store they would open in the last five years. It's probably around a. 3,500, 4,000 square foot store. I, I struggle to estimate it exactly because it's um, a pretty irregular shaped space. Um, so they, they had a couple like kind of um, art installations that are pretty cool. They, they had a wall with all these um, multicolored cubes. And these are physical cubes that rotate um, on some sort of autonomous system. And so, you know, they're, they're doing cool patterns of color because each side of the cube is a different color. But then, you know, they'll have a big reveal where the cubes rotate around to spell Google um, in, the, in the Google logo colors, which is kind of cool. Uh, they had this big sphere in the middle of the store that's made up of a bunch of, uh, like, seven-inch tablets. And the... Tablets all have synchronized graphics on them, so they do these like pulsating patterns of color that pulse to music, um, and then they change into this like photo cube experience where they they make a mosaic of a photo that they spread across all the cubes and stuff. And so, so they had a couple cool sort of eye candy displays that main purpose were sort of brand elements. Um, but then they had two vignettes; they had two ro- like enclosed rooms. One was uh, sort of dressed to look like a living room, um, and that had a, 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 a Google Home in it. Um, and then they had one that was sort of dressed to look like a kitchen, and that had a Google Home in it. So you'd walk into either of these rooms, and they had a, a demo guy that was walking people through the various capabilities of Google Home, and, and you know you were able to try it. And so for our listeners that, that don't follow Google closely, Google Home is a pretty obvious knockoff slash competitor of the Amazon Echo. Yeah, what what? Uh, go ahead and call it. Who's going to win? Uh, so Amazon certainly has a significant head start, and like it, it was not obvious from this demo that that Google has some real secret sauce. 
to close the gap. Uh, I certainly wouldn't write Google off, um, but the demos right now, you know, feel uh, very much like a Me Too product. So the the industrial design is is nice on the devices. It's a little more distinctive, and that could be a pro and a con. Like some people might really like the aesthetics of the device, and and you know that might drive them to buy it. But it does stand out in a, in the room a little bit more. It's visually more prominent. And so, you know, I think you and I, I know, both have multiple Echoes throughout your house. You, you know, I think a lot of users are going to want those things to sort of blend in. And the the much more, like, modern, hip, white aesthetic with a splash of color that, the you know, these Google Homes have, you know, I don't know. It's, I think it's, it's going to be much more obvious if you have, one, have a bunch of them scattered around your house. Um, yeah. But it's a simple... Did it make any mistakes or do anything wrong or, like have trouble with the demos that you saw? Did it feel kind of beta-ish? No, well, so yes and no. So so hardware-wise, no. It, it worked pretty well. The, vo- the voice recognition was decent. Uh, one of the things Amazon, I think, is really good at is recognizing your voice in relatively noisy environments, and it felt like the Google device worked pretty well you know, in that regard also. So, you know, they crammed a bunch of people in each of these enclosed rooms, and so there was kind of a lot of buzz and the Google still seemed pretty reliably able to respond to all the commands. Um, and the, the audio fidelity seemed great. The, there's some cooler color LEDs on the Google. So, you know, it just from a visual standpoint, it's more interesting when it's, it's thinking. Um, but it, it has, you know, at this point, no third-party integrations, which I think is a big uh, strength of the Amazon uh, product at this point and, you know, all those third-party skills and cool things you can do, you know, Google Google just isn't there yet. So it's it's mostly, you know, Google has to compete on just the built-in capability and they're debuting this Google Assistant, which is kind of the next generation of Google Now. Um, and, it you know, it, it works, but it, it just didn't seem like it was clearly better than all the stuff we're already used to. So, you know, there are certain commands that it's it's obviously hardwired to understand and execute. But then when you ask it other questions, it tries to use Google search results. Um, and so, you know, if you ask it a question it doesn't know the answer to, it just, it, it does a search in the Google index, and then it reads the first paragraph of the first page. And, you know, that, that actually doesn't work that well, right? Like, so, you know, you ask it who you... Just mostly Wikipedia. Yeah, but even, like, not in the right context. So, you you know, you'd ask, like, I ask who's going to win the presidential election, and I just got some some random paragraph about, you know, a Donald Trump biography, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it wasn't actually predicting that, that Donald Trump was going to win. Um, so that, that felt like that had a ways to go. I mean, they were, you know, they were demoing that, that the Google Assistant has some nice context features to it. So, you know, you can ask it a question and then ask follow-on questions. Um, and the answers to the follow-on questions are contextually relevant to the last answer, which is kind of cool. And it feels like you can do that at greater depth than you could with Google now, which had a little bit of that. So that's, that's kind of interesting, but it just, it doesn't feel like they have enough content in there yet that it felt magical. You know, the only AV it integrates with is the, the, the Google video service, which is, you know, not all that popular in the overall scheme of things. Um, And so it just, it just didn't feel like, you know, it's, it's coming out more than a year after the Amazon product. And, you know, so it's competing against a robust ecosystem and it just didn't seem to have some new killer feature that would make you want it more than, than the Amazon products. 
Yeah, and then so if Alexa has skills, what does Google Home have? I forget. I remember they had a name for it, and it wasn't skills. What was theirs called? Yeah, so I I think you're right. That was not demoed, and I don't think that's live. Like, I don't think there's a public API that people can develop for yet. Like, I presume there's a select group of developers that have closed access to it, but but, uh, I couldn't tell you as I sit here right now. Yeah, another thing I thought was unusual is it gets all its music off YouTube, and I don't know. I'm not sure YouTube has what kind of catalog they have compared to, like, the Amazon music stuff. Yeah, so they did, uh, in fairness, that was one third-party service that they did have integration to, is they do have Spotify, which is, you know, certainly popular. But, you know, these days, I think, you know, there's people that are loyal to Pandora and Spotify and Apple and Amazon and all of those ecosystems, and, you know, Google supports less of them than than anyone else at this point. So, obviously, those are all things that Google could pretty easily catch up on on software, and we've certainly seen Google do well in the past, so I'm not necessarily writing them off, but it did not make me want to rush out and add a bunch of these devices on top of all the echoes I already own. Mm. How about the pixel? Are you going to add that to the collection and put it next to the Amazon fire? Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I think if you're a Android loyalist, uh, it very likely is going to be high on your wish list. Like, you know, the, the sort of best Android hardware, I think for a while has been the Samsung hardware. And obviously, you know they they're in in a a huge black hole right now with the the failure of the the Galaxy Note um and so you know couldn't be better timing for Google to come out with their super phone um you know i think specs wise it does not stand up particularly well to you know even the Samsung Galaxy S7 uh and certainly i don't think it stands up well to the iPhone 7 um, in terms of raw performance and some of those things, but they're claiming it's, you know, highly optimized to run uh, Android in real world applications. So, you know, I think we'll have to wait until more people get their hands on them to report on that. But, but form factor wise, it's a elegant, very thin phone. Uh, they're trying to make a lot of hay about the quality of the the camera and particularly the low light capabilities of the camera. So again, you know, have to wait until some of the, the hardcore photo guys get it and put it through the paces. But the preliminary tests I've seen is that it's going to stack up pretty well as a camera phone. Um, the, and then of course the big appeal to people that love Android is it, you know, it's the most pristine true version of the Android operating system. That's unadulterated by all the, the junkware that all the other vendors and carriers put on it. Yeah. It's one of the only phones with nougat, right? So I think you can get, um, uh, if you have Nexus, you can retrofit nougat on there and a couple LGs, but I don't think, um, at least none of my Samsungs or other phones, uh, have really supported nougat yet. No, I think you're right. I think they've all said that, uh, that the later Samsung phones are going to get nougat, but they haven't pushed it yet. And it's, it's, you know, it's part of the problem of the Android ecosystem is it's this awkward multi-tiered system, right? Like Google releases an operating system and then, you know, Samsung has to tailor it to their hardware and then they have to release it to the U S carriers that then tailor it to their, their service. And, you know, so all of them have to go through their own machinations before, uh, customers have availability and, you know, between those ecosystems, there's a pretty checkered past of, of the, of all these hardware getting new versions of the operating system. And as a result, Android has a big installed base. If you just say Android, but like, 
you know, it's all the various permeations are really fragmented. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so I have a mobile app company, Spiffy, and uh, it is a real headache to support all that stuff. And even even the same phone, same OS, different carriers will have very different behaviors. It's very frustrating. It's like the QA matrix has exploded on on Android, so it's almost untenable as a developer. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that's always going to be a weak link in the, the Android approach. Um, but it certainly means that, you know, folks like you and I that are kind of interested in what Google offers – are always going to gravitate to those those versions because you know they are the most likely to get updated the fastest and and you know to give us the the truest version of Google's intent. Um, you know, it. Uh, I don't at this point have a compelling urge to add another uh, Android phone to my arsenal, so I, I don't think I'll be ah. a, an early orderer. I will say they that you know as a a physical retail guy, you know, you're like, all right, so how are we going to tell the story of this low light camera? And so they, they developed an experience. They created a dark room and they took a bunch of fiber optic cables and did kind of an art installation where they hung all these cables from the ceiling. And so you're kind of walking through a forest of these, these light vines that each emit a small amount of light. And they, um, have you sort of stand in the middle of all these these multicolored fiber optic cables and they take a picture of you with their camera and they email you that picture. And, you know, uh, they also will offer to take a picture of you with the phone you brought in with you so you can get, you know, both of those those photos. And I, I can't speak for people that came in with, a you know, an old a older model phone, but I obviously have a, a an iPhone 7 and you know it it's not clear which is better yeah yeah i saw you tweet that and it was a little confusing like why you were hanging out in a you know a room full of optical vines but i guess it makes sense now you explain it yeah i mean so that was the intent and i think it's a cool immersive experience and it's kind of a fun room and it's visually very interesting Uh, it's not a particularly valid way to judge the low light because like you know, all these vines are in front of you. It's not like there's some high res thing to look at and and see. You know, which one's green, more grainy, and it's all these artificial colors. So, you know, there's you're not able to look at that and have some frame of reference as to how accurate the color re- reproduction is or any of those sorts of things. So, it's more theater than helpful test. But you know, that's it. You know, it probably is a, a great storytelling. Uh, you walk in there and you see that and you you very quickly get the message that Google thinks their phone is good at low light. Yeah, you kind of want something with more contrast that kind of goes from pitch black to light over a period of time to kind of see what the camera does to pick up all those different zones in between. Exactly. And, you know, again, in my case, I, I posted both pictures on Twitter and didn't identify them. And, you know, part of, you know, part of the reason I did that is because you'll look at the two and, you know, I think it would be totally subjective which one is you like better. Or most of yeah. our viewer listeners aren't going to like either because it's a picture of me. Yeah, well. As we all know, you're, you're about, the pretty one on our team. <laughs> Someone's got to carry the load here. Um, did you get to play with the Daydream? So I've, I was pretty excited by that. And, um, you know, everyone that listens to the show probably knows this. We're big VR, AR kind of uh geeks and that is their new vr where and it's um so you use the pixel you mount it in there and it's got like the soft squishy sides that seem pretty interesting yeah and i I, that was also the google product i was most interested in 
Um, and that was the longest line. Um, so they had, you know, created a kind of cool, uh, artificial background that just kind of made you feel like you were in an artificial environment and you waited in line and they sat you down on a little stool and you know they they put put you in a a Google daydream and hand you a remote control and and let you have at it um and so I think of all the Google products this one to me is the the one that had a unique novel feature that that you know I could imagine being desirable for some people. So, you know, it's I think this product is definitely most analogous to like the Samsung uh, VR gear, um, you know, or or Google Cardboard, right? Like it's using your phone as the hardware. Um, and to your point, the industrial design of the Daydream is kind of cooler. It's it's much softer and less structured than like the hard plastic on the on the Galaxy VR, and it, it, it looks more organic and less sort of techno. Um, and it it's super easy to put on and comfortable. Uh, you and I both wear glasses, and I know a lot of the, the headsets um, are not particularly comfortable to wear with glasses because there's, like, hot spots pushing on your glasses or it's just not a good fit. Um, this had a nice, comfortable headband that was super easy and intuitive to adjust. You just kind of pulled it tight, and it snugged up to your head, and there was plenty of room for your glasses and it just felt kind of soft and approachable and the whole the the way the phone mounts in it is pretty simple and low tech like there's just a little elastic clasp so you so you know it just kind of unfolds you you sit the 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 phone in there and you clasp it up um and so that was all great i i have to admit like i was a little ginger about putting it on my head because in my mind the phone wasn't perfectly secured in there and so i could imagine if you really whip that thing around the phone could fly right out of there, whereas in the Samsung, it's pretty securely snapped into the the device because the Samsung it literally has to dock with the device because the remote control yeah. is built built into the the hardware. Um, so, so I give the the Daydream high marks for simplicity and comfort. A downside of that is it does not seal to your face as tight as most other VR goggles. And so there was a lot more light leakage. Um, and that's a big bummer because it that can really disrupt the the sense of reality from the content when you're, you know, getting a bunch of light uh, shining into your face. Um, yeah. One, one of my questions that I think you've answered is it wasn't clear in the Google demos and on their site if it they make it seem like it only works with the Pixel, but I saw nothing that like seemed to actually restrict that. So it sounds like you could almost use any phone in there. Yeah, I think that's the case, and they um, were a little vague on that as well. Like they definitely are only demoing it with the Pixel, and I think it's designed for the exact dimensions of the Pixel. The Pocket does not seem like it's. Uh, super tailored to a particular size phone. So I'm certain I, uh, I didn't have it with me, but I'm certain I could put my Galaxy S7 in there and I suspect it would work just fine. Um, there's no hardware interface to the, the, the thing at all. Um, I could imagine some phones fit better or worse and maybe like you might have like part of the, I don't know, the border of your screen might be slightly obscured by by the device, you know, depending on how different in size it was from the the Pixel. Um, but it does not seem like they're guaranteeing compatibility with any phone other than the Pixel at this point. Um, but so to me, the best feature and the feature that I think, you know, is a differentiator, certainly from Google Cardboard and from the Samsung VR, 
is this little handheld controller. So the way the Samsung works is if you need to navigate a menu or anything, the the side of the goggles are actually touch sensitive. So you you hold up your right hand and you kind of feel this, you know, uh, special special portion of the goggles and you kind of have a touchpad on the on the side of your hand that you can uh, click and and do some, you know, uh, multi-directional gestures. Um, the goggle uh, or the daydream has a, a wireless handset that I assume pairs with your phone via Bluetooth. Um, and it has, it has a 3d accelerometer in it. So it, it has a touch screen or a, you know, a touch pad that you can swipe your thumb in any direction on. It has two clickable buttons, but then it also can just detect where you're pointing and how you're moving the, the handset. And that works really well. So, like, one of the first pieces of content I tried was, um, what's the new Harry Potter movie? The uh, the Beast, Magical Beast. Exactly. So so they had, like, sort of a immersive experience from, from Magical Beast. And, the you know, you, you're holding a wand in the VR. And, you know, wherever you, you point the pointer, you see the wand physically point in the content. And that felt really natural... Um, and very realistic and it felt like really accurate. Like the, the one was pretty good at, at detecting small or large gestures. And throughout the course of this game, you could actually learn magic spells, which required you to manipulate your wand in particular patterns. And so the device could actually tell that you're spinning the wand in a circle or doing a reverse C or doing these different things. And that, I felt like that worked really well. And that was a much, kind of better, more immersive user interface, um, frankly, than the, the, the Oculus, you know, uh, the, the default Oculus interface or the, the Samsung VR. Although, as you know, Oculus is coming out with a, a better user interface here pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like you had a lot of fun with the old wand there. And then the, uh, it's interesting you mentioned that because the PlayStation VR is out and, um, one of the little things they do is you can see the PlayStation remote, you know, virtually, um, which is at first I was like, wow, why, why are they using screen space for this? But it's super useful and it really kind of helps you to stay in the experience because uh, if you, you know, if you can't remember or feel where the bumper is, you can kind of look down and, and it doesn't take long for your brain to like kind of synthesize that and see the controller and feel it. It's pretty neat. Um, sounds like a similar kind of a thing. Oh, yeah. And. Uh, you know, I think this will come to the PlayStation first, but because of the the licensing. But um, ten seconds after doing this Harry Potter game, you're saying like, "Hey, they need a lightsaber here." Yeah, yeah, battles and I think or Battlefront. Yeah, we'll be on there exactly. Uh, so, so I think that's going to be an interesting product. Uh, you know, I don't think it's it's super expensive, and I think that's a really approachable. Uh, path into VR for a lot of people, assuming it works with a wide variety of phones. And frankly, it'll be annoying and kind of stupid if they don't support the iPhone in that thing. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's a big uh, chunk of the market, and and it would be a little self-defeating on Google's part, I think, to not support it. Yep. And then I saw you were kind of floating around by that um, 
that Empire State area there where doesn't Amazon have, there was a lot of rumors if they were going to open a little store or not, but I think it turned out to be a prime now distribution center. Did you, did you get to poke around in there? I did. Uh, I tried to get arrested in fact. So, oh. <laughs> so uh, West 34th street is kind of a, a storied retail street in New York city. Um, the, the largest uh, Macy's in the world is, is right there in Herald square. That's the, the, uh, it, it changes periodically, but I think at the moment it's the largest department store in the world. Um, there, you know, are a bunch of other interesting flagships that have come and gone from 34th over time. Uh, so there's a, a big Uniqlo store there. Um, B and H photo is now kind of like at the end of that corridor and Apple has taken like a pretty big prominent space. And when they first did this lease before they moved in, we were like, all, Oh man, this is going to be the first, first Amazon store. Um, did I say Apple took a space and I meant to say Amazon? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So Amazon took the space and we were all thinking that's going to be the first permanent Amazon store. And it makes perfect sense. Like it's a pretty central location in New York city, um, super high traffic as a result. The rent there is probably very expensive because you're you're paying for store frontage real estate in a in a super high traffic corridor. Um, and then, you know, about a year ago, it opened up and it was a employee only entrance with security guards. And it turns out it that was the Amazon now fulfillment center for Manhattan. And so they're mostly some expensive fulfillment centers. Yeah, really expensive. Uh, they're mostly, you know, fulfilling out of the back. Like, so the, the delivery guys for the most part are not coming and going out of the 34th street entrance. Um, the public can walk in. There's kind of a long corridor when you walk in and there's a bunch of Amazon prime lockers. So you can, uh, you know, uh, have, have Amazon orders delivered to those lockers and you can go in and, and pick up items right there. And I imagine, that's got to be one of the fastest delivery locations uh, in the Amazon network. Um, but then, you know, you walk past those lockers and you're at a security desk. And, uh, you know, I, I tried to sort of wander my way in and see if that, you know, they let me use the restroom or anything to kind of sneak in. And they were they were pretty strict. Looking for books. Hey, do you have books in here? Exactly. I have a return I'd like to do. <laughs> That's y'all's favorite thing. Exactly. Um, so that, you know, that's interesting. That's now a year old. Uh, that's directly across the street from the Empire State Building. Uh, I didn't, I didn't visit th- this time, but that the Empire State Building is interesting. There's a high traffic Starbucks in the base of that Empire State Building that's the, to my knowledge, the only Starbucks delivery location in the country. So if you mm. happen to work in the Empire State Building, you can uh, actually order Starbucks using the Starbucks app and have it delivered from there to your office, which is would be big trouble for me. Yeah, yeah. You could triple your number of uh, Starbucks you could have a day. Exactly, um, which is already like you know more than I care to admit on the podcast. Um, <laughs> so then I walk down the street from uh, the fulfillment center to the Macy store. Uh, they had made a lot of noise about the fact that they had just launched the first Apple Shop and Shop inside of Macy's. Um, and, you know, as you may know, Shop and Shops have always been an important strategy for Apple. Before they had retail stores, um, they were they actually had Shop and Shops in CompUSA. Uh, today they have Shop and Shops in a large percentage of all the Best Buy stores. Uh, they've extended those to some Target stores. Um 
And so I was, I was curious to see what the execution would be in Macy's and you know, it's pretty undifferentiated. So it feels like the exact same shop in shop from a uh, Best Buy. And the one thing that was interesting is, you know, one of the things you negotiate in these shopping shops is whose labor is going to staff that store. Is that going to be Macy's employees or are they going to be Apple-trained employees? And in the Best Buy store, they're frequently Apple employees, uh, and Best Buy employees cover, like, the off hours. (laughs) And so you get, you know, someone trained by Apple and all those sorts of things. At the Macy's, they appeared to all be Macy's employees, and the giveaway was uh, that they were all wearing uh, Macy's sort of business attire and ties, which felt really incongruous for an Apple shop and shop. Could you go and um, buy like a an iPhone and a pair of pants and some shoes? So I did. It appears. So I think the real answer is yes, because I did check in the POS that was used. Like they had a Macy's POS set up. So I, obviously in the Apple store, you'd for sure use a. Uh, one of the wireless checkout terminals. Um, and the employees did not appear to have those. And they, they had a traditional cash wrap around the corner. And so you'd buy your Apple products at that cash wrap. And I don't know if they would discourage you from wringing up your pants, but I, I think from an operational standpoint, you absolutely could get some perfume and a, uh, an iPhone and ring them up together. Interesting. So what do you think big picture about this strategy? Are people suddenly going to go to Macy's for their their phones or is this kind of just a, I don't think it's probably a bad experiment. Well, no. So I think it's a good deal for Macy's. Like, I don't think it's going to be become a new destination for Apple products. Like I don't think anyone that wants the Apple experience is going to say, Oh, there's a better flavor of that at Macy's than there is at a Apple store or frankly, even a Best Buy store where you could likely find a lot of third party accessories for Apple that you can't find in a Apple store or a Macy's. Um, but I do think, you know, the Macy's, the good Macy's locations are still high traffic, uh, and it's an opportunity for Macy's to get a little more wallet share. So you're probably going to not get in, in very many locations. I don't think there's any good Macy's that are in a location that isn't adjacent to an Apple store. So I don't think Macy's is suddenly going to get a bunch of new trips specifically for Apple products. But I do think there are, you know, people that will be shopping in a Macy's and make an unplanned Apple purchase or, or certainly at this Herald Square store, which has a huge amount of tourist traffic, um, you know, that, that tourists might make an unplanned purchase. And I mean, to put things in perspective, I think that store gets about 35,000 visitors a week. So, you know, it's, it's pretty prodigious foot traffic. And, and, you know, normally the shopping shops and things in Macy's are kind of put down on the like basement level. Like when Etsy had a shopping shop, it was in the basement. This is in a very high traffic location on the first floor, um, which is right in the cross traffic for two of the big doors. And so I think Apple had a lot of leverage with Macy's that they got, you know, to negotiate a good, a good location and high visibility. And I think, you know, Macy's was pretty happy to add, add Apple to the mix. So I I think, you know, it's probably smart on Macy's part. You know, um, I don't think it's going to be a game changer for any Apple shoppers. I mean, I think the one, the one wrinkle could be, you know, are they going to get some allotment of new product? And so when you're trying to buy that iPhone on launch day, um, you know, and they all sell out at the Apple stores is, is, is Macy's going to be a clever backdoor because people won't think to go there, you know, maybe. Hmm. Did it have any Apple store styling like the tables or was it a totally different? Kind no, of no, no. It's exactly the Apple shop and shop fixtures. So, so Apple has developed fixtures that they make and provide to Best Buy. 
Um, and they are slightly different from the fixtures used in an Apple store, but they are, um, they're very in brand for Apple. So it's the wooden tables and some, you know, Apple style gondolas. And, and it's, it's the exact same fixture set that you would, you would expect to see at a Best Buy store. They have the full product line, phones, pads, pods, watches, full first party product line. So the shopping shops don't, uh, have third-party product or have very minimal third-party product. Um, you know, whereas a, a full Apple store will carry a, you know, a reasonable assortment of third-party Apple compatible products. Um, but yeah, everything that Apple makes was in that store. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for the trip report. Sounds like, uh, you got to hit a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's always fun to visit new retail stores and see how people are, are, uh, experimenting with reimagining physical retail. Yeah, and you got a clean shave. Boom! Exactly. Can't say that every every uh, retail experience. No, 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 no. And I survived it. The straight razor, razor. I, I feel like I I put my life in some some minor risk. Yeah, yeah. Those are always exciting. So it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't spend a little more time on Amazon. We did talk about that Prime Now fulfillment center, which is pretty interesting. Um, and speaking of Prime, there was a, a uh, an annual report that comes out from one of the Wall Street analysts I follow. It's John Blackledge, and he's at Cowan. Uh, and he surveys uh, several thousand people about prime usage and, and things like that. Uh, what was interesting this year is he's increased his forecast in the U.S. to 49 million prime subscribers. Uh, we have at Chambizer kind of somewhere between 60 and 65 globally. So I think that's pretty close to where we are. Um, and then he did this interesting thing where he kind of figured out what are they worth? And, and he did some analysis looking at the margin from them, the average order value based on the survey results and the number of orders compared to a non prime member and came through and said that the program's worth $143 billion to, to Amazon kind of put a little life on them with, with churn and whatnot. So I, I thought that was an interesting analysis. We can kind of point people to it in the show notes. Um, so I thought that was cool. How about you? Any interesting Amazon news since the summit? I mean, I think there were a couple things. Uh, Apple launched a new music service, a pay music service that uh, you know uh, sort of competes with the the Shopify's of the world. You did it again. You said Apple. Wow, <laughs> Amazon. Did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all these A companies are really getting me. Uh, yeah. So Amazon launched the Music Unlimited service, and they, you know, there, there are a couple interesting flavors of that. So they had a. A family plan, which I think is like fourteen ninety nine a month, if I have it right, um, mm-hmm. that lets multiple family members all have access to it from all their devices. Um, they have a single plan that's like ten bucks a month or eight bucks a month if you're a Prime member, and then they have this sort of novel plan that's like four bucks a month uh, that's attached to a particular Amazon Echo device. So you know, you and I have multiple Echoes in your house. This would be like four bucks a month to only have music on one of those devices. And so assuming that the catalog is at parity with the other pay music services for prime members, it's a little cheaper because, you know, most of the paid services are like 10 bucks a month. And uh, the Amazon one with prime is eight bucks a month. And, you know, then if you're a single echo household, you could you could get the service for four bucks a month. Yeah, yeah. I signed up in the trial period and. The experience is pretty good, um, and I'm a big Spotify user, so that's what I'm comparing it to. One thing I f- wish it had, so the catalog feels really good. I listen to a lot on new music, and uh, it feels 
they definitely have filled that hole because when you do the normal prime music, you don't get much of the new stuff that's come out. Um, so they've definitely filled that hole in the catalog. Um, you know, the, it wasn't clear to me how you mark your music to go. So, uh, I saw on a checklist that you can actually do that and Spotify allows that as well, meaning you don't have to be connected to the internet. I haven't figured out in the app how to do that yet. Uh, and then also I have so much invested in my Spotify playlist. I really need a way to slurp those over. So it was kind of un Amazonish to not have a little Trojan horse to do that. And maybe I've missed it out there. Um, Another thing that's interesting is it's not entirely clear to me that if I sign up for the individual plan, will all my echoes work with it? Because I've actually tried to find some songs I know that are on Spotify, but not Prime Music and are also on the Unlimited, and it's not playing those even though I've signed up. So I... Uh, I'm either doing something wrong or I don't have it wired right, or maybe you have to pay extra to get all your echoes to use it, which doesn't seem like how they would do it, but it's, it's kind of an unusual glitch that I found there. Yeah. Now, uh, certainly the marketing would lead you to believe that for that, uh, I assume you're on, or I know it's free right now, but you're on the, you, you would, you're testing the $8 plan. Yeah. And, and certainly the marketing for that would have you believe that it should be, that music should be accessible from all your echoes, assuming your Amazon account is the primary account for all those echoes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I don't know. I haven't, I actually have, have waited for you to be the guinea pig there. And to be honest, just to validate your catalog, I wanted to ask if your daughters are using it because I somehow suspect they're stressing the catalog more than you. They're not. I like to, uh, so they we share this we have the family Spotify and it kind of creates all kinds of chaos because our playlist all get jammed together and stuff. So I'm enjoying being on on the the music alone by myself, <laughs> the music unlimited by myself for interesting. A while. That's actually a cool feature that Netflix has that you'd think some of the music services would add. Where you know when you share a Netflix account with multiple family members, you can still identify the users for that very reason, so that recommendations and stuff are specific to the user. Yeah, it, it's a little bit of a. It would be nice to have that. Um, so here's a good. I don't. You know, here's a good, a good example. So Kings of Leon came out with a new album called Walls, just like in the last month, um, and that's an example of you. I can tell Echo to play it via Spotify, and it works. But and I can play it on Music Unlimited on my PC, but I cannot get Echo to access it through voice. So something huh. something to maybe you could try to replicate it if you're interested in experiment. Yeah, yep, it's definitely on my to-do list. Uh the the primary demand for those services in our house has a lot more uh, uh young children's music at the moment. So I'll I'll be super excited to expand our repertoire of nursery rhymes. Yeah, I'm not sure. This may be explicit. You may not want to play this for the kids. So that may be a you commute time kind of a, a, a thing. Got it. More explicit than me when I stub my toe in the middle of the night? Okay. <laughs> can't can't say. And Jeff Bezos, if he's listening, um, maybe he could give me a call and help me figure out what's going on here. Yeah, he'll, he'll get he'll, right over there for tech support. Uh, more, like the perfect combination of Amazon news. Did you see the drone patent? I did. Yeah, it was kind of a very unusual use case. It was kind of a, uh, it was a little drone that follows you around for security reasons. Like it kind of, is it, it wasn't clear to me if it's like filming bad guys. I didn't go into the patent per se, but I, that was kind of the headline and it didn't make a ton of sense to me. One of the methods in the patent like seemed like it was quite intentionally for law enforcement. So they literally envisioned this is a little drone buddy 
for a policeman. And when you, you know, come up, come up to the suspect and the suspect takes off, uh, you, you send the drone after the suspect so that you, you could take another path and try to cut him off. And the drone keeps him in surveillance and sort of follows him. There was a book where, uh, I'll have to go find the title of it, where everyone was followed by a drone and you had these cameras on you all the time and and some wacky stuff like that happened. It's almost, you know, fiction becoming reality. It it felt a little Blade Runner-ish to me, uh, but it did just strike me as incongruous. Like, that seemed like a weird use case for Amazon to be getting involved in, but I guess that was just an output from all their, their drone research. Yeah, it's not like they're... They're big into selling stuff to the police force that I'm aware of. Yeah, no, exactly. One one thing that was interesting is they did announce this year that they're really dramatically increasing their seasonal labor, um, and they're going to do a 20% increase in seasonal workers. Um, I think in past years they've done 10 or 15%, and that was interesting. I, I'm sure um, that you get a lot of calls on this too. I get a lot of you know, calls from reporters asking to comment on this. Uh, and I don't think they're happy with my answer. My answer was, you know, they were kind of like, you know, why would they be doing this and why so many? And, you know, other retailers are doing 10%. And my answer was, is it enough? Because, you know, uh, as we talk about on the show, Amazon's growing. The part that I look at, which is the, the EGM piece is growing pretty close to 30%. Um, they've added, you know, a good 12% capacity and f- number of fulfillment centers. So that gets them right at 30%. If they had a bit of a blowout holiday, do they have enough capacity? So, uh, so that was kind of a fun kind of trying to explain to the reporters what I was talking about there. <laughs> yeah, no. And I, I mean, I, I, I do think it's an open question. Like as much incremental fulfillment capacity and delivery capacity and labor capacity as Amazon's adding, it still feels like they're nervous about their headroom. And, you know, obviously we've seen a lot of of uh, announcements about them sort of throttling FBA access. And, you know, I think they might have even had a cutoff and not they might not be taking new FBA sellers until after holiday at this point. Yeah, they have surge pricing, which I think is is definitely, um, you know, creating an economic disincentive to stuff things into FBA. Uh, another one that I saw that was interesting is there's this company called True Blue, and they're a, a temporary workforce provider. Uh, Amazon's their largest customer at something like 15% of their revenue, and they just literally got notified days ago that Amazon has decided not to use them anymore and to um, you know work directly with the workforce um, starting in the fourth quarter, which uh, which is interesting. And the Wall Street take on it was, you know, when you use one of these systems, you get a trade off. You pay a bit more, but you get a little bit more flexibility, and, and you outsource the management of this stuff to someone else. And the the Wall Street take was that this was Amazon just getting tighter around owning every penny of spend and controlling it, and you know, down to eight decimal points or whatever they do. Um, so that was another kind of little interesting tidbit I saw on this topic. Yeah, and that that is an interesting aspect to this, right? Like, so at a macro level, you look at it and go, "Oh man, they're increasing their seasonal labor." By 20%. And, you know, you'll see a lot of other retailers are like 6% or 10% or even flat, right? Like they, you know, they, they have a surge, but the surge is the same this year as last year. And so, you know, you look at that on the, on the face and you say, man, Amazon is expecting to take a disproportionate amount of the holiday growth again, which I think is a reasonable expectation. The, the thing that could be convoluting that a little bit is, 
Amazon gets labor through a bunch of different paths, and and many of those are via third party contractors, and obviously a lot of the fulfillment staff, um, the the full time uh, staff in the fulfillment centers is actually hired through through third party contractors for a variety of of uh, controversial reasons, and so it, you know I wonder if that twenty percent is actually the real net number, or if that's just the you know through one particular program. Yeah, not clear. The other thing that uh, another reaction I had that I don't think a lot of the reporters had thought about is okay, let, let's say Amazon has a, you know, at least 20% growth over last year. Um, and maybe it goes to 30. Uh, it, they've, they've been trending towards 30 in the last couple of quarters. We don't know about Q3 yet, but they've been accelerating the last couple of quarters. I don't see anything to, that they wouldn't have accelerated again. Um, then I start to worry about, okay, if they can get all the things at least put out of the distribution center, can the fulfillment network handle it? That that's another thing. You know? Yeah. Where is the actual choke point, right? Yeah. Like what's I haven't done the math on that, but that's you know yeah. when when you kind of say Amazon's Q four increases by twenty percent, that that's, you know, literally like twenty million packages or something yeah. like that. And and that, you know, and it you know, as as you know, it gets condensed into that really short period of time. So um yeah, I don't want to be alarmist, but I wonder if we could be looking at another 2013 shipping debacle kind of thing, you know, because Amazon's been building out their own capacity and they're using the U.S. Postal Service. FedEx and UPS have been growing their networks, but not a ton, certainly not 30 percent. So there's, there's going to be some point where they hit a ceiling there. Yeah, and I, I doubt it's seasonal labor at Amazon, right? Because the one thing that's unique about seasonal labor versus some of those other constraints is – the labor is not linear, right? Like, so you don't need 20% more people to ship 20% more packages, right? So, you you know, you might be able to add 20% more people and ship 30 or 40% more packages, but the fulfillment center space and the the delivery network is linear, right? Like, you, you need 20% more truck trips to deliver 20% more packages, unless you, you get, you know, bigger shopping carts, Um and you need 20% more shelves to stock 20% more stuff. Yeah, there's a little variability in turns, and that's what I think they're doing on the FBA tweaks is trying to get the turns up. Um, but yeah, there's there's still a it's still quite linear. Yeah, so I, I think that the labor is the 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 least linear of the, of those variables is my suspicion. Agree. Uh, so I did also see there, uh, you know, we've talked in the past three weeks ago about uh, Project X, which is that drive up grocery store that they're opening in Seattle. And, uh, mm-hmm. yep. you know, I know there are now uh, some very helpful Amazon followers that swing by that construction site every day and take pictures. Uh, and originally we had strong uh, suspicions that it was an Amazon site and there were lots of indirect relationships between the construction site and Amazon, but it wasn't confirmed. And we, we now have a bunch of pictures of like, uh, you know, parking barriers and things that actually have Amazon logos on them. So it, it, it for sure is a, an Amazon site that they're building. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, it's really exploded that, you know, Amazon's going to, I don't know if this was a rumor or official, but, you know, they're going to open a fair number of these and that's gotten everyone kind of spun up about grocery and what's this mean and why are they doing this if they have fresh and and, uh, would love to hear your grocery person take on the whole thing. Yeah. So as we've talked about a couple of times on the show in the past, I think grocery is a huge opportunity for digital shopping. 
something like 50% of all the growth in the grocery and CPG categories over the next three years is going to come from uh, digital, the you know, it's it's something like 40% of all consumer spending is in that category. So it's a, a huge chunk of the discretionary spend for consumers. Um, and the the most popular use case is going to be this buy online, pick up in store use case. So either you place your order through your phone and then you swing by and get a curbside pickup or you swing into your Kroger or your Best Buy and pick it up at a special location in there and you save all the the shelf picking time, um, but you avoid the hassles of having perishables delivered to your home when you're not there. And so that feels like the, the mainstream use case, the, the total available market here is enormous. There's not like a clear leader in that, in the market in the U S right now. And so, you know, it's a land grab and the, you know, the two or the three players you see, you know, most, uh, running fastest in that market right now are, are Amazon, Walmart, and arguably Kroger. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's going to be interesting. Like, this is one of the rare areas where Amazon is at a significant structural disadvantage <laughs> to the other two because you need a bunch of locations in consumer uh, car-friendly locations to pick all this stuff up and Amazon's going to have to, you know, uh, do new leases and do new construction and Walmart and Kroger have, you know, a lot of locations that are already cited for that, that exact set of variables. Yeah. And then, um, you said project X, I've also heard it called project Como. So it's a little confusing exactly what the difference is there. Um, and I checked and it was from the wall street journal and they kind of cited on, you know, the, the, they, they just kind of yeah. had reports of it. They, they didn't really have an Amazon quote. At the same time, for Fresh, uh, so Fresh had a $299 a year fee, um, and they've, they've essentially changed that pricing model and really lowered that fee to 15 a month on top of Prime. So it's 99 a year plus 15 a month. Um, so that's kind of interesting. You can turn it on and off and have a bit more control over it. So it seems like they're, so they have Fresh, they've got Prime now, which I kind of, you know, we use a lot for grocery and it has a fair number of grocery items. They've got this new Como X thing. Um, so it sounds like they're really experimenting in, in multiple dimensions simultaneously. So it must be pretty important to them. Yeah. I, I do think this is, uh, potentially the next huge category that, you know, Amazon wants to win and that, that, you know, Walmart and Kroger feel like they, they have to defend. Um, a, a interesting sort of Internet of Things play here is, you know, Amazon previously with Fresh was in about six markets. In two of those markets, they offered this cool device called the Dash. And the Dash has gotten really confusing because now there are these Dash buttons. But the original the, thing, the device actually called Dash is a little battery powered wand that you could get as an Amazon Fresh customer. And it had a barcode reader and a um, microphone in it. And so you could you know, scan the barcode on any of the products in your kitchen and that would automatically put them on your your Amazon Fresh shopping list or you could say an item into the microphone and that would put it on the shopping list. And so that was available to a very small subset of Amazon users. And uh, the same time they changed the Fresh pricing, they refreshed that hardware. So they're now on generation two of this little Wi-Fi wand, and they've made the wand available to all Prime members. So now it's not just for fresh items. It works for all items in the Amazon catalog. So, you know, you can now have 
one of these devices in your home and you can scan the barcode on your packs of Kleenex or baby wipes or whatever you want and add them to your Amazon shopping list. So it's another sort of low friction Internet of Things way to buy from Amazon. Cool. Yeah. So almost seems some of these you know specific devices, you kind of look at it and you're like, wow, I already have my phone. So just using the Amazon app may be a better use case. I'm not not sure, yeah. but you you've played with one, right? Do you guys use it pretty actively? Yeah. Is, is so in this case, case I do think like there's some value. Like this thing's faster, and you know you you can leave it um, in your kitchen, for example, right? And so when you use the last of the milk, it's much faster to just pick this thing up off the counter and in half a second click the button, and uh, it uses a laser barcode reader to scan the the barcode. That's it, it's considerably faster and lower friction to me, at least, than. Uh, you know, finding my phone and firing up the app and aiming the camera and waiting for it to focus and uh, and all of those things. Like, you know, the one exception might have been that was the one cool use case of the Amazon Fire Phone is there was sort of a dedicated button for that same purpose. Yeah. And then um, did you see this lawsuit where Apple is suing? This is going to this is going to blow your yeah, mind because it's both of these things. So so I'll I'll. Uh, I'll, I'll try to lead us through this. Uh, Apple is suing Amazon and they, what they did is they bought a bunch of Mac chargers um, from Amazon and they found over 90% were actually not real Apple certified products. They were fakes. So, um, and what's interesting about that is there's a bunch of third parties, but then also a lot of the first party, meaning Amazon was effectively selling it, uh, product was also not real and authentic. So, um, they didn't, you know, directly sue Amazon. They sued this company called Mobile Star LLC, which seems to be a big supplier to Amazon themselves. For so, so that was interesting. Kind of, you know, that you know, even even companies like Amazon that I'm sure pays very specific attention to this, they uh, they had some counterfeits kind of sneak through the system there, and their own buyers couldn't tell the difference. Yeah, and you know, I'm I'm less interested in the specifics of this particular lawsuit, although. You know, I think there have to be some fascinating dynamics there because, you know, Apple and Amazon have, you know, have a pretty big vendor relationship. So it's always awkward when you're you're suing your partner um, or at least someone related to your partner. But the the bigger implication here is, you know, there are a bunch of brands that amongst their gripes of Amazon talk about the the counterfeit problem. Um, and, you know, I, I believe that Amazon is really concerned about the counterfeit problem and goes to a lot of uh, steps to sort of remediate it. But this is a, a very tangible data point that I suspect a lot of other brands um, are, are going to start using and catches their attention to say that, like, see, there, you know, there's a potentially more widespread counterfeit problem on Amazon than than certainly Amazon has fessed up to. Yeah, and then um, changing gears a little bit, yesterday eBay announced their earnings, and uh, Amazon's on deck next week. Uh, I believe it's, let me see, it's Tuesday next week. Hmm. Nope, it's Thursday of next week, so on the 27th of next week, so we have to wait another week to kind of see how they did. Um, but, you know, eBay was a bit kind of lackluster, for lack of a better word. Uh, it did not kind of, I think Wall Street was kind of thinking that the marketplace, the core marketplace, and, and by that I mean excluding StubHub and their classifieds business, which ironically are growing great guns. Um, you know, the, the traditional marketplace that we think of really kind of underperformed expectations. So, um, so gr- it grew about 4% when you take out the benefit from, from, 
uh, FX. And that just, you know, as you know, 15% is kind of the baseline in our industry. So eBay's really struggled to grow in line with e-commerce and, and people thought there was some acceleration going on in there uh, over the last couple quarters, but, but did not kind of materialize this time. Um, one of the things that's interesting is eBay is uh, this huge kind of replatforming going on where, uh, eBay listings are this kind of great unstructured mass of goo, uh, just listings everywhere. And, and you, you see this in the buyer experience. If you go search for anything, you'll get 50,000 listings and it can be really tough to slog through all that and really understand what's going on in there. So if you search for an iPad, you'll get not only iPads of every generation, you'll get accessories and everything like that. And it's, you know, when you compare that to the Amazon catalog based experience or structured data experience, it's, it's not as nice. So they're working on rolling out structured data and they call this the SDI, the structured data initiative. Um, so what was interesting on the call, uh, was, and in the results, uh, about 46% of, uh, what can be cataloged is, is what they're calling process, which means they have pages. So they have a hundred million pages out there. Uh, and they did say that, uh, when they take external traffic and drive it to those pages, it converts 10% better. Um, but you know, what, what's interesting is they're really only doing a very small number of these pages. And, and, uh, I think a lot of the wall street guys got kind of wrapped around the axle and, and I didn't understand this logic either that eBay was effectively saying, you know, even though these pages convert a lot better, they're still not ready to send traffic to them. And, and I kind of was thinking, Hey, if, you know, any other retailer I know, if they have a product page that converts 10% better than the, you know, the, 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 the B converts 10% better than the A page, you would send all the traffic to B. Uh, so it's not exactly clear to me why eBay isn't doing that. So that was kind of a, an interesting kind of a, uh, nuance that I thought you would, you would appreciate on that one. Yeah. Maybe the bankers aren't ready to collect all the money yet. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, maybe they just don't have enough. The the bank accounts deposit slips. Um, <laughs> another thing I thought was kind of a bit of an elephant in the room is, uh, and this was funny because you and I interviewed Facebook um, when we were at Summit, uh, and I didn't know anything about this new U.S. based marketplace thing they were rolling out uh, and how how serious it was for them. Um, so I had heard from our Australia folks that they have this in Australia they have a marketplace, and I was asking and. Uh, they acted a little weird. I don't know if you picked up on it when I started asking about it, and they kind of you know pivoted away from it a bit. Uh, and uh, it turns out that the next week they announced the Facebook Marketplace. And what's interesting to me about this is all the previous Facebook e-commerce efforts have really been them pushing, right? So they're like, okay, put a store on this page. Here's a buy button. Here's some payment stuff. Um, Facebook was trying to, to innovate. And although while they were doing that, what's happened is these, these groups have formed using the Facebook very basic group functionality. We have like one in my neighborhood and there's, you know, if you're in another kind of, there's a lot of local ones. So there's like a neighborhood one here. Um, but then I'm in several like Star Wars ones and stuff like that. Um, they, these little groups just started forming where people buy and sell things. And, uh, you know, they, they have all these little procedures and things that have been developed for doing things. So what Facebook did with, with this new marketplace functionality is they put some structure around it, uh, and they kind of have a local one built in, but you could set up other ones. But then what I think is most important is in the mobile app, which you and I know is like 90% of their traffic. It's, it's a pretty prominent button in there. The, the little button in the bottom center that used to be how you got to messenger, the external messenger app or internal back in the day, uh, has been replaced with this marketplace thing. So, so 
I've seen the local one here just explode since they've done that. And I say it's an elephant in the room because a lot of what eBay still does is what they call consumer to consumer or their consumer business. And I think, you know, what I think this is going to be quite popular. And it's all the articles I read are, you know, that it's going to destroy Craigslist, which is true. Uh, but what I think's happened to Craigslist is it's not a lot of products on Craigslist anymore. It's largely jobs and service kind of things. Uh, and I think eBay has more product that's kind of more local consumer to consumer. So, uh, no one asked about it and eBay didn't really comment about it. So I, I thought, you know, I, I worry a little bit about that because I do think that's going to create a, yet another headwind for eBay. Yeah, no, I, I thought that was a really smart offering on Facebook's part. I think there's two sort of key advantages there. Um, you know, obviously Facebook makes the bulk of its revenue on advertising and by, you know, making that marketplace a little more structured from, from the old forums, uh, they're now getting a lot more uh, buying intent data, you know, and specific interest data about consumers. So they they can sell, you know, uh, audiences with higher buying intent to advertisers. So from an advertising standpoint, seems like the, the marketplace is smart. Um, and then, you know, one of the things Facebook has always focused on is authenticated users and, you know, not allowing a lot of aliases. And so from a a security standpoint, when you're buying something from someone anonymous that, you know, created a fake throwaway Craigslist account, you know, there, there, there was a lot of security concerns associated with that. And, uh, it feels a little bit safer to buy from someone with a, you know, credible Facebook footprint. Yeah. And they, you know, it's very simple, but you could see the path. It's very eBay-esque in a way where, okay, now people can start, maybe there's a little reputation sharing where you can kind of rate the transaction. Uh, and then it's pretty easy to roll a payment thing in there. They even have, I, you probably know this better than I do, but they have that functionality kind of like Venmo where you can send money on on uh, Facebook. Um, it's not wired into the marketplace, but that, that seems like a very logical kind of option when you go to list something, you know, imagine a flag that says, hey, I want to enable these people to send me money through the Facebook payment, you know, the... Yeah. the I think it, no, it's in Messenger. Yeah, it's in it's so in can, Messenger at the moment. That, so yeah. you can imagine it's already happened yeah. where you know a buyer and seller met up on that marketplace, and then the means of transaction was you messengered messengered the money to them. Um, but to your point, like they haven't officially plumbed that up yet as part of a transaction engine. Yeah, so that you can just see the roadmap lay out there and. Um, it's going to be really, really interesting. And speaking of Messenger, um, Facebook, or, or, sorry, eBay released a Facebook Messenger app called Shopbot. Uh, and it's, uh, I think it's driven by an AI company they acquired. And uh, it's actually pretty interesting. So you add, uh, I think it's called eBay Shopbot, S-H-O-P-B-O-T. You go on Facebook Messenger and you add that. You search for it and you can add it uh, and start messaging to it. Uh, it's actually pretty good. I, I experimented with it. I got it stuck uh, at one point, like I got kind of pretty far down a, a buying path and then I like tried to change the topic with it and it was just kind of, it kept spitting out the same thing that, you know, I couldn't get it kind of pop back up to the stack. So definitely felt a little beta wearish. Um, uh, but it was, it was pretty interesting. And, and when they announced it, um, Hal Lawson, who runs North America kind of talked about them being excited about off platform sales. And that's a whole new mindset for eBay. eBay's got, you know, as one of the older e-commerce companies out there, it's always had a bit of a, hey, come into our walled garden and don't leave. And this is where you come to get eBay. Um, so it was interesting for them to just hear a little bit of a different tone there of, you know, kind of taking that eBay catalog and seeing where else they can put it. So so that was 
kind of a refreshing kind of thing and an interesting experiment for eBay to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and as you pointed out, uh, all of these bot shopping experiences are still a little rough right now, right? And you wouldn't look at any of those and go, man, this is, you know, exactly as is, is going to be a game changer. But each one is a, is getting a little bit better. And I think there's a lot of reasons to think um, that in the near future, that's going to be a meaningful channel for commerce. And particularly when you combine it with customer service and other things, um, you know, there's a lot of evidence that that's how uh, millennials want to interact with brands. And that's that's going to be the big, big way to upsell and sell sell to those folks when they're getting customer services via these these bot experiences. And so speaking of the bot experiences next week, I am going to be in Las Vegas for a couple of trade shows. And I suspect some of our listeners may be as well. Um IBM has their World of Watson show in Las Vegas. So uh, that's all things cognitive computing. And there's a unique track for commerce. And I'll, I'll be giving a presentation in that track. And so if any, any of our listeners are uh, going to be in Las Vegas for World of Watson, I'd love to hear from you. And then, you know, at, at an adjacent hotel is the Money 2020 show, which is all the the latest innovations in digital payments. So so, you know, there'll be a lot of cool commerce goings on next week in Las Vegas that hopefully we'll be able to recap on next week's podcast. Cool, cool. I look forward to that. One uh, one last topic. I, I know we're stretching time, but we haven't talked in three weeks. So, um, the uh, and I know we have a lot of vendors that listen to the show, and, and it was interesting from a vendor perspective this week because it came out – uh, and I don't know who found this, but in one of these big kind of politically, seemingly politically driven WikiLeaks dumps, um, you know, from, you know, some kind of hackers, everyone thinks they're the Russians, I don't know. Um, it came out that Colin Powell's email was hacked and in his, he is on the salesforce.com board and someone found a board presentation from the spring, uh, and the topic was M and A. And what was really interesting and, and it's kind of funny, this went through the vendor community like wildfire. Um, it was really kind of, it was pretty long. What was it like 60, a hundred pages? Yep. And it was effectively, yeah, it was effectively salesforce.com's entire kind of thinking about M and A. Um, and this was before they did the demandware acquisition and it kind of went through the rationale. It talked about their desire to have a commerce cloud. It talked about who else they were looking at and their competitors. It was it was really fascinating to kind of get an inside view of how a really big company like that looks at these things. And um, and I know I've talked to probably ten vendor folks that have found it very insightful and interesting. And uh, there were some mysteries in there too. Like one, uh, I, you know, one time they were looking at maybe buying Adobe, who's bigger than they are. And um, so it's so a really kind of interesting. Uh, and uh, also there was some commentary about LinkedIn and what it would have taken to buy that. And did, did you get a chance to glance at that? I did. And I never had I imagined that um, I would be reading hacked Colin Powell emails for part of work. Yeah, yeah. What were your takeaways from? Yeah, well, so the consideration set that that uh, Salesforce had is pretty interesting. Some of the companies on their consideration set uh, have subsequently been acquired by others. A few of them are still in play, um, and you know, uh, at that time, eBay or I'm sorry, Salesforce had given code names to four of them. So the four they they gave these official code names for, which would kind of lead you to believe that the ones they were pursuing most seriously were LinkedIn, which we know they didn't get. Uh, ServiceNow, 
uh, Tableau, which is still out there. And so Tableau is, is an interesting one that you, you might still see Salesforce get. And they're a, a, an analytics company. And then, of course, Demandware. Um, and so Demandware being directly in our space, super interesting to see what, how, how Salesforce viewed that. And, you know, in these documents are some, some financial uh, numbers from Demandware that, you know, I don't think were previously public. So essentially they, the, the PowerPoint disclosed that typical Demandware customer pays between one and three and a half percent of their revenue to Demandware. So it's a, we've, we've all known it's a, a rev share model, but demand we're saying that that's the range is kind of one to three and a half percent. Um, and they're saying that the average contract is about three to three and a half years. So if you're a demand where customer and you're paying on the high end of that, or, you know, you have a contract on the long end of that, you, you might want to be thinking about your, uh, renegotiating your, <laughs> your next contract, I guess. Um, <laughs> I'm sure they're going to, the salespeople are going to love that. Hey, look, here's the slide that shows, yeah. Never. Yeah. Why am I over? Never good news when when uh, Colin Powell outs your sales strategy, um, and then uh, I found just personally interesting. You know, on this table, they, there's like ten attributes about each company, and so you know they're they're trying to simplify this for board members, and so they're saying that Colin Powell, hey, here are ten attributes about these companies that you should think about um, when you're when you're evaluating them, and you know they're things like revenue and growth and and enterprise value and number of employees and number of customers uh but then two of the attributes uh were were stats from Glassdoor so one of them was the CEO rating from Glassdoor and another was would uh employees recommend this employer to a friend um and i just found it interesting that the Glassdoor attributes were we're making, we're, you know, influencing the consideration around these major acquisitions. Cause frankly, I, I talk to a lot of senior management teams that, that really don't have a reputation management strategy for their own employees. And they, you know, they really sort of ignore the presence of these services like Glassdoor. And we usually counsel them that that's a mistake, that in the same way, you know, you need to have reputation management for your product reviews and, and, you know, do the best you can to, to have your products have good social proof. You need good social proof for your company, and so it was sort of striking to me to see see these these two rows saying like, "Hey, Demandware has a ninety five percent CEO approval rating, and ninety five percent of the the employees would recommend it to a friend." And you know, you you compare that with something like uh, Box, which was on their consideration set, and Box has like a you know sixty eight percent of the employees would would uh, recommend it uh, employment there to a friend, and so just I, I found that interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'm in the same camp. It's kind of uh, the other thing that struck me having done these kind of word presentations is that felt like probably a finance team of 20 to 30 and then a analyst team of another 20 putting that together. I mean, that was a, you know, that was an intense Goldman Sachs level kind of a deck that they had put together there that, you know, probably, you know, yeah, many thousands of, of people hours went into that deck. So um, it was pretty impressive the the scale and the amount of work that went into it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll be curious to see if, uh, you know, all those, those Colin Powell emails are, are out on Wikilinks. I'll be curious to see if there's any other uh, demand where deal uh, stuff that gets leaked. This is why I do not email with him. Yes, I, th- I think that's that's very wise. We won't talk about your secret communication means because we want to keep the the security obfuscation going. 
Absolutely. But Scott, I am uh, sad to report that it's happened again. We've spent a perfectly good hour plus of our listeners' time. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. We really appreciate it. And thanks for helping us hit this milestone of 65,000 spins. We appreciate you guys and look forward to bringing you more Jason and Scott show. We absolutely couldn't have done it without you and uh, appreciate you being on the journey with us. So until next week, happy commercing. been listening to the jason and scott show for all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing subscribe to us on itunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com